Well, 12 weeks ago, we began a new section of Romans that begins with chapter 12 and deals with the outworking of those saving mercies of God, which are are described rather so beautifully in chapters 1 through 11. And in those opening verses of chapter 12, Paul appealed to us, to the church, to be different for having received the mercy of God in Christ, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The rest of Romans 12 and 13 then have explored what this transformation ought to look like. And as we have discovered, it is a comprehensive transformation. It is a transformation that affects our entire church, all of our relationships with others. It affects our relationship to the state and the governing authorities. And as we saw last week, it affects our relationship to the law of God. The popular notion that Christians are no different than the surrounding culture, that the only thing which makes us different from them is our belief system, is utterly foreign to the New Testament and is, in fact, a denial of the power of the gospel. The fact is that you should be able to walk up and down your street or up and down the cubicles or the offices or the boardrooms at work or up and down the hallways at school and given sufficient time and sufficient interaction, you should know who the Christians are by the way that they live, by the way that they speak, by the way that they act. If you can't, they're not Christians. If knowing Christ and having the power of the Spirit has not transformed your life, then you don't know Christ and you don't have the power of the Spirit. Now, I've attempted to make this clear throughout the past three months and over the last two chapters of Romans. Today, we come to the end of Paul's general exhortations to the church. Romans 12 and 13 have application to every believer and every church in every culture and every age. The next section, beginning in Romans 14, 1, dealing with the weak and the strong in faith, addresses a particular concern that was specific to the Roman congregation. It's not that it doesn't have application to others or to us. It most certainly does. It is to say, rather, that in order to understand what Paul is going to tell us in Romans 14 and half of Romans 15, we're going to have to know something of the underlying context, something of what was going on in the Roman church that prompted him to write. But today's text is still in that section dealing with the universal outworking of the gospel. Romans 13, 11 to 14 functions as a summary then of all of the last two chapters of Romans 12 and 13. It gives the last of those exhortations related to that general command, be not conformed, rather be transformed, with which this entire section began. Here we see that the spirit-indwelt believer has a transformed outlook on life. He lives with a sense of urgency because he discerns the time. 
the world will not always continue as it has. It has a termination point. It is coming to an end. And each passing day brings us nearer to the day, the day of judgment upon those who sleep and the day of salvation for those who have awakened, those who have put off the works of darkness and have put on the armor of light. In other words, this passage not only wraps up Romans 12 and 13, it puts this entire discussion of Christian sanctification upon what we could call an eschatological foundation. In other words, it answers the question, why? Why should we not be conformed to the pattern of this world? Why should we be transformed by the renewing of our minds? And the answer Paul gives is because the night is far gone, the day is at hand, Christ's return is imminent, and he will soon appear, bringing with him retribution and vengeance upon the sons of darkness, but salvation and glory upon the children of light." This morning's passage easily divides into two main sections. The first, verses 11 and the first half of verse 12, establish the time in which we live. Paul says, the night is over, the day is dawning, the return of Christ is at hand. And as we will see this morning, that is just as true for us today as it was for Paul 2,000 years ago. The second half of this passage, the second half of verse 12, 13, and 14, establishes our responsibility in view of the present time. Paul's going to tell us to wake up, put off your night clothes, put on the garments that are fitting for the day, and go walk in the light. So we begin with Paul's discussion of the time, which focuses upon the imminence of Christian salvation, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Okay, So Paul says, besides this, you know the time, or in the New American Standard, do this, knowing the time, which is probably more to Paul's Point. In other words, the reason you should do all of these things in Romans 12 and 13, the reason you should not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the reason you should exercise your charismatic gifts, Romans 12, 3 through 8, the reason you should love the brotherhood, 9 and 10, the reason you should devote yourself to the ministry of the gospel, verse 11, the reason you should persevere in the faith, verses 12 and 13, the reason you should love your enemies and walk in wisdom towards outsiders, 14 to 16, the reason you should forgive your enemies, those who have harmed you, verses 17 to 21, the reason you should submit to the governing authorities, 13, 1 to 7, and the reason you should fulfill the law through love, verses 8 and 10, is because you know what time it is. You see what Paul's doing here? Do this because you know what time it is. Now, time in this passage, often though not always, or the word that Paul uses, it's the Greek word kairos, it often though not always refers not to chronology. That's a different word. That's the Greek word chronos, from which we get the word chronology. But it refers to a moment of opportunity, 
Not to chronology, but to eschatology. It's what John Stott called that existential moment of decision. In this context, when Paul says, you know what time it is, it's not time that can be measured by a clock or a calendar. It's time that is measured by this concept of imminence or nearness. What follows then in verses 11 through 12 are three phrases which explain what Paul means by the time. In the first and the third, he's going to use this metaphor of daybreak. In the first, Paul compares the hour to the break of dawn. He says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Then in the third one, in verse 12, Paul says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. And then in the middle of these three phrases, second half of verse 11, he says, the salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. All right? So the time has come for you to wake up. Why? Because the night's gone, it's morning, the day is at hand, and salvation is nearer to us now than when we first came to Christ by faith. Paul is, as he often does, distinguishing salvation from our moment of conversion when we first believed. You know this by now, if you've been through Romans, that for Paul, he can use salvation in different ways. He can use salvation to refer to the past, you have been saved. He can use the word salvation to refer to the present, you are being saved. And he can refer to the future, you are going to be saved. Or, for Paul, sometimes it can refer to the whole gamut of God's saving work understood comprehensively uh, from election, atonement, calling, justification, sanctification, all the way to resurrection and glorification. Clearly here, Paul is speaking of that future component of salvation, its culmination, its consummation. That time when Christ will return in power and in glory to complete our salvation by raising us from the dead and transforming our mortal, perishable bodies into glorious, imperishable bodies when he will usher us in to his everlasting kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. So when Paul says your salvation is nearer to us now than when you first believed, he's talking about that completion of what was begun in eternity past and purchased at the cross. And the reason this works so well within his metaphor of daybreak is because throughout the New Testament, that time of future salvation is so often referred to in in the framework of the day. It's the day, that day, the great day, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day when the Son of Man is revealed, the day of redemption, the day of visitation, or the day of Christ. All of those New Testament phrases are referring to that second coming of Christ when he will come to complete our salvation. Like time in verse 11, in each of those phrases, day is not used in a chronological sense. It's not referring to a 24-hour span of time. So now that we've defined our terms, okay, time and day, I think two questions confront us in verses 11 and 12. Number one, how is it 
that Paul, living some 2,000 years ago, considered the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, the day of our salvation to be imminent, near, at hand. And secondly, what effect does the imminence of future salvation have upon the way that we live in the present? We're going to try to answer those two questions this morning. Now, nobody would disagree with the statement that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Like, that just makes sense. Every day draws us closer. Time doesn't work in reverse. But Paul clearly believed that the day of our salvation, the day of Christ's return, was imminent. That's an important theological word, imminent. That's the whole point of the daybreak metaphor. It's not the middle of the night, according to Paul. The night is gone. The day is at hand. It's imminent. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Now, of course, Paul isn't the only one to speak like this in the New Testament. All of the apostles, even Jesus himself, expressed an expectation of the imminence of Christ's return. And yet, 2,000 years have elapsed since Christ's ascension. 2,000 years have elapsed since Paul wrote that the day of the Lord was at hand. So how are we to make sense of this? What gives? Was, Was Paul simply wrong? Well, there are three ways to look at this. The first is to say that relative to the entire history of the world... The day of the Lord and the end of the age are much nearer to the apostles than the creation in the beginning. Okay? Many thousands of years had elapsed prior to Paul's statement, and only 2,000 years have elapsed since. So relative to the whole history of mankind, the return of Christ was near. You could look at it like that. Or, here's a second way, you could say that relative to God's eternal, timeless being, the day of the Lord is near. That seems to be the way Peter handles the problem of imminence in 2 Peter 3 when he writes against those who are saying that the the promise of Christ's coming was null and void because 35 years have elapsed since Christ ascended into heaven and he still hasn't come again. And to those people, Peter calls them scoffers, he responds in this way. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." So you could approach the problem of imminence. And what I mean by that is, how is it that Paul could say the day of the Lord was at hand 2,000 years ago, right? You could approach that problem in one of those two ways, that Paul's speaking relative to the whole history of mankind or that Paul is speaking relative to God's eternal and timeless nature. And both of those are good and biblical ways of dealing with the problem of imminence. But I think there's another way, a third way of looking at this that sheds light on how Paul and the rest of the apostles and even Jesus himself viewed the biblical end times time frame. 
And that's to note that when they spoke of the day of the Lord being near or at hand or imminent, they weren't thinking chronologically, they were thinking prophetically or redemptive historically. In other words, when they thought about Christ's return, they didn't have their calendars out. They had their Bibles out, specifically the prophets. And they knew that the next major event in God's redemptive timeline after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father was his return in glory to judge the wicked and to save his people. That is the meaning of imminent. Not that Christ's return is near like next Tuesday or far like 500 years from now. Imminence has nothing to do with time, but rather with conditions. There are no necessary conditions to be met before Christ can return. No prophetic conditions to be met before Christ can return. Every event which Jesus and his apostles and prophets predicted would take place before the end can be understood as having been fulfilled. That's not to say that they have, it's rather to say that they may have been, and there's a difference. So let me give you just two biblical examples that I I hope will clarify what I mean. Matthew 24, Jesus concludes his prophecy of what the intervening age between his ascension and his descension, uh, his first and second appearing, will be like, an age of tribulation, and he describes things like false messiahs, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, plagues, persecution, and, and so forth. He then says this, Matthew twenty four fourteen, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That could be understood as a prophetic condition of Christ's return. He will come in judgment and salvation when the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed to every nation, to the whole world. Clear enough? Well, what is the whole world? What is every nation? Is Jesus speaking of the inhabited world of the first century or of the 21st century? Is he speaking of every nation in existence 2,000 years ago or every nation in existence today or every nation in existence at some point between those two time frames? Does he mean all nations without exception or all nations generally? Do you see the problem of of trying to set world evangelization as a precise condition for Christ's return such that you could say, well, the whole world hasn't been evangelized, therefore Christ can't come back yet. That's problematic because we don't know when or how that promise will be fulfilled. Jesus intentionally spoke in veiled, mysterious terms so that we would not be able to pinpoint the exact hour of his return. Let me give you another example in Romans 11. 
Paul explains the mystery of God's sovereign plan as regards the redemption of Israel and their relationship to the Gentile nations. And he says in Romans eleven twenty five, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That could be understood as a prophetic condition for Christ's return. Christ will come back when the fullness of Gentiles has come in and all Israel has been saved. But is Paul talking about the Israel of God Uh, the church of Jew and Gentile, as he does in Galatians 6.16, or is he talking only about ethnic Israel? And how is Paul using the word all here? Is it all Israel without exception, or the majority of Israel, all Israel generally? And when will this transpire? Before the coming of Christ as a precondition of his return, or at his return? When the deliverer actually comes from Zion to banish ungodliness from Jacob, which is my present view uh, based on Zechariah 12.10. Do you see why it's problematic to set the conversion of Israel as a precise condition of Christ's return? We don't know when or how that promise will be fulfilled. Paul's language is veiled, mysterious, because I'm not certain that even he knew as he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's veiled and mysterious precisely so that we will not be able to pinpoint the exact hour of Christ's return. And the same could be said of every prophetic condition set for Jesus' return, be it the rebellion, the apostasy, the revelation of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, or, or the series of numbered judgments in Revelation. And that's the whole point of imminence. In response to Jesus' question in Matthew 24 about the timing of his coming and of the end of the age, Jesus said this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. Not even the Son. But the Father only. He then compares his coming to the flood of Noah and to a thief in the night. In other words, it's unknown and he concludes in this way, Matthew 24:44. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in at an hour that you do not expect. The point of imminence is that you don't know, so you must be prepared. The event is certain, the timing is not, kind of like daybreak. Now I know today we know to the moment when the sun is actually going to rise. That wasn't the case when Paul first wrote this. It was, a, it was a guess as to the precise moment of daybreak. And so this, this metaphor works pretty well for Paul's purposes in Paul's age when he says the night is far gone and the day is at hand. The night is what the Bible would call this age, this present, fallen, evil age of sin and darkness. At Christ's first appearing, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, 
the dawn began to break in upon the night, the darkness of this present evil age. The first light began to color the horizon. But the sun has not yet appeared over the horizon. That will occur at Christ's second coming. And it will inaugurate the day, the day of the Lord, the day of salvation and judgment. But in this present age, both for Paul 2,000 years ago and for us today, we live in that pre-dawn hour when the light of the coming day is beginning to break in and dispel the night. We live in this overlap of the two ages. The age to come has broken in upon this present age. This present pre-dawn hour is the age of the spirit. It's the age of the church. It's the age of world evangelization. It's also the age of tribulation, of persecution, and of the perseverance of the saints. So Paul says, the night is far gone The day is at hand, therefore, says Paul, it's time for the church to wake up. It is the imminence of Christ's return and of salvation, or judgment, that he will bring that forms the basis of the exhortations which follow in this passage. Still employing the night and day metaphor, Paul gives three sets of instructions to the Roman church and by extension to us today. Instruction number one, he says, in light of the imminent return of Christ, the imminent breaking of dawn, it's time to wake up. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now Paul's writing in a first century context when people's People's lives were ruled by the sun. They rose at first light. They started their day at dawn. They did much of their labor by, before the midday heat. Only the lazy laid in bed past dawn in Paul's day. Or perhaps more fitting to the context, only the sinful slept in. The debauched, the dissolute, the drunkards who had spent the night engaged in the kind of activities that Paul is going to condemn in verse 13. Those activities belong to the night and not the day. So the church must first wake up. The biblical writers repeatedly compare the sons of this age to a people who are asleep who are unaware that the day is about to break, who are unaware that there is work to be done, and who are unaware that with the dawn comes the king, but not the church. The church is comprised of an awakened people. Secondly, it's time to get dressed. The night is far gone, verse 12. The day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. All right, so having waken up, It's time to put off those garments that belong to the night, the works of darkness, those deeds that belong to this present evil age, and it's time to get dressed for the day. But notice what kind of garments he wants us to put on. Not garments of leisure, garments of war. Weapons of light, literally. The armor of light. Paul is calling the church to get dressed for battle, the battle that belongs to this pre-dawn hour. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6 when he said, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. All right, so let's drop the metaphor for a moment. Let's speak plainly. What does it mean to put on the armor or the weapons of light? How does one put on truth, righteousness, gospel readiness, peace, faith, salvation? I think Paul clues us in when he finally, in that last verse, breaks from the armor metaphor and he gives us a definition, right? He says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is... The word of God and praying at all times in the spirit. So all of this armor, all of this, these weapons of light are found in the word of God and in prayer. So how do you get dressed now that you have awakened to the pre-dawn light? You give yourself to the word of God and prayer. Take every opportunity to immerse yourself in these means of grace. Do so privately and publicly, individually and corporately. Read and pray, read and pray, read and pray. That's how you put on the armor of light. That's how you get ready for Jesus' return. That is the one and only way to arm yourself for the battle that comes with the dawn. So wake up, get dressed, and finally, walk in the light, which involves putting off the deeds of darkness. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul sets before us two very different lifestyles. One that belongs to the day, to Christ, and one that belongs to the night, to the flesh. To the night, to the flesh, belong orgies and drunkenness. Right? Those riotous, drunken parties at which all manner of indecency and debauchery take place. They were a staple of first century pagan life in the ancient world. Modern equivalents might be, in my high school, it was high school parties down at the creek. In other, it might have been parties at the farm. Or in college, it would be fraternity or sorority parties. Maybe in the adult world, some of the office parties that you hear about. They're riotous, drunken affairs where morality just flies right out the window. Paul says, don't have anything to do with those. He says, to the night belongs sexual immoralities and sensualities. That is, illicit sexual encounters that you know to be wrong. That's why you hide them under the cover of night. He says, to the night belong quarreling and jealousy, which I like how John Murray links those together. He says, that's the natural sequence 
or, or sequel rather, of the kind of abandonment to debauchery described by the previous words. In other words, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality le- leads inevitably to quarreling and jealousy. And Paul says, don't participate in such things. Flee from them. Those things belong to the night. They belong to the darkness. They belong to this present evil age. But you are children of light. You're sons of the kingdom. So suit up in your armor and go out to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That flesh is Paul's favorite term for the fallen sinful nature that still clings to us in these yet-to-be-glorified bodies. So he concludes, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, which means that we are consciously to embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifested in all that we say and do. We want to be so closely united to the Lord Jesus through the word and prayer that it's as if we were wearing him as a garment. His thoughts have become our thoughts. His affections, our affections. His desires, our desires. His words, our words. His deeds, our deeds. This is truly what Paul meant when he said up at the beginning of this section, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Transformed into what? Romans eight twenty nine. Transformed into the image of Christ. Put on Christ. Be transformed into the image of Christ. So I ask you, what about you? Do you know the time? Do you recognize that there is nothing stopping the Son of Man from appearing in terrible power and breathtaking glory at this very moment than the patience of God awaiting the repentance of his people? Nothing stops his return. Only those who are clothed in Christ will be saved by Christ at his appearing. Mark that. Only those who are clothed in Christ, who have put on Christ, will be saved by Christ at his return. So this text this morning, it calls us to examine our hearts and our lives. Where do you stand in light of this passage? Are you awake or asleep? Are you a child of darkness or a son of light? Are you ruled by Christ or are you ruled by the flesh? Simply put, are you ready for his coming? You may not be aware unless you listen very closely to the first sermon in this series in Romans nearly two years ago now, that this passage we've been looking at today led to arguably the most important conversion in the history of the Christian church since the Apostle Paul. The year was AD 386, and Augustine was in Milan, Italy. For nearly ten years, The young African had been on a feverish search for truth, a journey that had led him from hedonism to Gnosticism to Platonism, and finally in Milan to the Christian gospel. For a year or so, Augustine, who was an intellectual giant of the highest caliber, he had been intellectually convinced of the truth of the gospel. 
He knew Jesus was the Son of God, the Word made flesh. He wrote in his confessions, I heard your voice saying, I am the God who is. I heard your voice as we hear voices that speak to our hearts. And at once, I had no cause to doubt. And yet, Augustine was held back from Christ. Held back from becoming a follower, a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had another master. Namely, lust. Though Augustine had come far from his hedonistic days back in Carthage, yet he had found it difficult, even impossible, to give up that last remaining vice. He had a mistress, a concubine they called them in that, those days. And Augustine, as he became intellectually convinced of the truth of the Christian gospel, he began to view his sexual sin as a slavery from which he longed to be free, but which he was totally powerless to rid himself of. Until one day in August of 386, when Augustine was in a garden praying, pouring out his misery before God. He writes, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again it repeated the refrain, Take up and read, take up and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and I rose up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage onto which my eyes fell. So I hurried back to the place where my friend Olypius was sitting, and I seized the book of Paul's epistles and I opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Romans 13. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And my prayer this morning has been and is that by God's sovereign grace, this passage would have the same effect upon you today. Christian salvation is imminent. Therefore, Christian sanctification is imperative. Only those who have put on Christ and have put off the deeds of the flesh prior to Christ's appearing will be saved upon his appearing. How long will you say, tomorrow, tomorrow, in the words of Augustine, why not today? Beloved, the time has come for you to wake up, get dressed, put off the deeds of darkness, the works of night. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and go walk in the light. My Father, I pray that your word would pierce the hearts of this people this morning. Give them a new outlook to know that every moment of every day 
I live in light of an imminent return of Christ who will be to me either my judge or my savior. And I pray that that knowledge of the imminent return of Christ would create within the hearts of this people an intense, irresistible desire to repent of sin, to put off the deeds of darkness, and to clothe themselves with Christ by the word of God in prayer. Holy Spirit, pour out your grace upon this congregation. Open their eyes to the imminent return of Christ. Cleanse their hearts by faith. Clothe them in Jesus. And prepare this church for your return. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.